Hello and welcome to Suvion, the Cambridge podcast from St John's College. I'm Heather Hancock, Master of St John's and host of the podcast that brings you stories from our community to intrigue, inform and inspire. It's a great pleasure to be joined today by not one but three guests all St John's scientists and all at the very forefront of their fields of research, focusing on cutting-edge technologies around energy. Addressing the climate emergency affects every element of our individual and collective lives. As a college, we've set out a detailed manifesto with bold steps to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to net zero. In this episode of Suvion, we're talking specifically about the energy challenges the groundbreaking science and innovation coming out of the labs that's going to help solve the defining issue of our time. And at the college scale, we're working across our 500-year-old built environment to achieve a major reduction in carbon emissions from energy consumption. So a very warm welcome to three fellows of St John's College, Professor Sir Richard Friend, who's Director of Research at the Department of Physics here in the University, to Professor Owen Reisner, Professor of Energy and Sustainability, who leads the Reisner Lab at Cambridge's Department of Chemistry, and to Professor Andy Woods, Director of Cambridge University's Institute for Energy and Environmental Flows, and Chair of St John's Energy Transition Working Group. It's great to have all three of you with us, and I'm particularly pleased that today's roundtable podcast, a first for our Suvion series, will give our listeners an idea of the special nature of a Cambridge college which brings together world-class academics across the sciences and the arts, outside their faculties and departments, so they can exchange ideas and knowledge across disciplines. In St John's, we have literally dozens of global experts working on energy, sustainability, climate change and decarbonisation, in specialisms ranging from chemistry and physics to engineering, computer science, economics, architecture, design and more. There's going to be lots to talk about. Please introduce yourselves um, and explain the fields that you work in. And Richard, may we start with you? Well, I'm Richard Friend. Uh, I'm in the Department of Physics uh, in my lab working day. I've been a fellow of this college for a long, long time. I work in uh, the field of energy, interconversion of light and electricity. Uh, We did a lot of work on making light-emitting diodes with organic molecules, which are now used in OLED displays in smartphones, and more recently, my focus is running devices the other way around, getting electricity out of light. Thank you. Erwin? I'm Erwin Reisner. I'm Professor um, of Energy and Sustainability in the Chemistry Department, also a fellow of St. John's College. Uh, My research is focused on using sunlight to drive chemistry. Um, So we have an interest in converting the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide to green fuels, and also using solid waste streams such as biomass or plastic waste to make value-added chemicals and compounds. And Andy? I'm Andy Woods. I'm a originally a mathematician who's been working on problems in fluid mechanics, modelling earth processes such as volcanic eruption, dynamics and ocean mixing. And I became interested in the science and engineering of energy systems through working on geothermal energy, 
which is a system where hot water is injected deep in the ground, boils and returns to the surface to drive steam turbines. Um, and since then, I've been working on heat flows in buildings, looking at how air moves around the buildings to deliver heating or cooling. And we developed a spin out from this to supply low energy ventilation to schools. And recently, I've been moving to look at the problem of carbon storage for energy transition, where carbon dioxide is stored deep in the earth. And um, we're now applying some of those ideas to look at geoheat storage and hydrogen storage um, in the earth. And I'm a professor in the university and have been in St. John's for 40 years since I matriculated. Well, as that's already made clear, we have colleagues around the table who are bringing so much uh, variety and, and uh, skill into thinking about the energy challenges that face us. And they've been brought into even sharper relief by the war in Ukraine and, and can seem overwhelming. There are so many dimensions to how we go about finding and adopting low carbon energy solutions. Can you kind of give an example, each of you, how you would frame the problem that you and your research groups are trying to solve? Owen. So we look at the problem uh, very broad and look at all components of the energy transition. And we try to focus maybe on the most difficult parts. This means really making fuels and chemicals renewably. So if we look at the global energy portfolio or demand, it's, it's about maybe a third in form of electricity, but two thirds is still being uh, used from fuels. So we try to tackle this challenge and just and now there's the circular production of these fuels. And how can we do this? Um, and here we really just see what's available readily. And this goes back to using carbon dioxide um, waste components from, from biomass plastics as a resource, as a precious material to make these chemicals and fuels of the future. Brilliantly put, Richard. How is it? What problem is it that you're focusing on? Well, I'm I'm interested in what we can do with solar, converting uh, sunlight into electricity. I, I used to be rather pessimistic because uh, I thought it was always going to be too expensive. But remarkable things have been done with silicon. So, in the last ten years, the price has come down by a factor of ten. So it's now actually price competitive with solar fuels. But actually, it's only the start uh, because silicon isn't very efficient and it, we've used it as a sort of hand-me-down from regular electronics. And there are now real opportunities to push efficiency up. It involves uh, dividing up the different colours of light in the solar spectrum to extract the most um, energy from each um, part of the spectrum uh, that we can. And for that, we need different materials. And that's where I've been working a lot with organic semiconductors where we're running backwards what we were doing previously with light emitting diodes. But it's a, it's a very exciting area where there's the sort of headroom, the possibility of going way beyond what is already pretty good with silicon is what, what drives us. And Andy? We've been looking at a whole series of applications of fluid mechanics for energy transition. And I think there's there's really two important areas where fluid mechanics is absolutely critical. First of all is in carbon storage. So the IPCC and the IEA, the International Energy Agency, have in their predictions of reaching the one and a half degree target, Paris target, um, about 20% of the present fossil carbon emissions need to be stored every year until 2100. And in order to do this, the, the carbon dioxide is captured from exhaust gases and can then be pumped underground. And the way the carbon flows underground is absolutely key to making sure that this is a safe and reliable system. And so a lot of our work is trying to understand how carbon dioxide flows in the subsurface and to understand how we can measure and monitor that carbon dioxide um, to ensure that it's stored safely. 
And then leading from that, the renewable energy systems, um, the solar and the wind, tend to be extremely intermittent in the supply. And so there may be periods of order a week or so where the wind power um, is actually running at much lower levels. And at the moment, that's supplied by gas-fired power stations. But going forward, we're going to need to supply that intermittency with, with energy storage. And then on a longer time scale, interseasonal time scale, there's, there's potential for doing thermal energy storage for you know, the winter heating, which we're not using in the summer. And that represents about four times more energy use at the moment than the present electricity supply in the UK. And so we've been looking at how we can use fluids to store hydrogen as a fluid to store that underground in geo stores as a way of having long-term energy storage, but also looking at very simple thermal energy storage and how that can um, provide some of the, the low energy, low-grade heating, because a lot of the renewable energy systems actually produce a lot of waste heat in hydrogen fuel cells, fast charging electric vehicles. One of the, the big challenges is removing heat from these systems. And if we can store that heat, that can have a major impact in changing the economics of the systems, but also providing that low-grade heat, uh, which represents a very large part of the, the whole energy system. You've all three of you captured there what what really strikes me about the work you're you're doing, which is you're at the sort of the hardest to do end of this scale, the almost impossible, and seeing the opportunity and the excitement of turning the impossible into the possible. And Erwin, we've recently been fascinated by some research that you've published about um, innovations, the use of an artificial leaf to to do some of this conversion of uh, sunlight into fuel. You tell us a little bit more about how that works and what you've done. Yes, um, it is a, a product of, of being at Cambridge and being an academic and having a lot of time to develop new technologies. So this um, project really started more than 10 years ago, in particular 12 years ago, um, when we got quite a long funding source for seven years to develop a, a system that could convert carbon dioxide into fuels. So this is very unique, I think, as an academic, where you really just present the vision and actually get a lot of time to do this, the science. So step by step, we could solve parts of the problem um, to build such a device and really most recently we could uh, assemble a fully operational artificial leaf that is even so light that it swims in fact on the river cam and it really it demonstrates the possibility of direct uh, sunlight or solar energy conversion into carbon fuels. Richard you've similarly been so influential in, in innovating and particularly as you've said around plastic electronics and, and the, now the opportunity that you see around silicon and turning problems on their head and looking at them from the other other dimension. You've been incredibly entrepreneurial as, as indeed Erwin and, and Andy are. One of the challenges and we've just heard from Erwin how long it takes and having the time and the patience to pursue these impossible solutions how does that translate into real-world applications in your experience? And how, how, how long does this take in this world where we all think we're running out of time? This question of how much time we've got left is, is, is really exciting. To be positive, what we've actually got is a roadmap, which we've never had before. We, we know what we have to do in each of the next few decades. And we know what sort of investments have to be made. And paradoxically, that helps that sets the timescale. We, we should be starting projects that won't be commercialised for 10 years because we know we're going to need technologies beyond those we've got today and therefore we should start now. Cambridge is a great place to start now because, uh, as Owen has mentioned, we are privileged that we can take a long-term view. We managed to uh, 
nurture projects that don't produce instant results. And yes, some of the stuff that starts upstream does take a while before it's sort of ready to be picked up in a commercial context. Um, but that awareness of what it takes and when is the right time is something that happens very well here. Andy, what's your perspective on that and the work you're doing? The time, the opportunity, the optimism? Yeah, so, so I think it's an extremely exciting time for all of science, particularly related to energy systems. At the moment, as Richard says, there is a, a roadmap, which I think provides a framework to test and explore different technologies and different approaches. We're going through a major industrial revolution at the moment. We're trying to replace all the systems that run on fossil fuels with systems that will ultimately run on electricity in large part. And that really requires a redesign of the system, both the energy supply system, and we touched on having solar and wind supply, and also a huge amount of storage. And understanding how to build that system and put that system together is really, really challenging. And then we need to have a grid, an electricity supply system that will be fit for purpose for the new types of energy supply and to actually supply a lot more electricity than we have at the moment. And then I think on the demand side, there's a whole series of new machines, new devices that we're going to need to replace the ones we have. And you already see a, a revolution happening in transport with electric vehicles coming in. We're, we know we're thinking of having heat pumps for heating systems. This is a, a totally different approach from gas-fired boilers. And understanding how we can scale and develop these technologies and what the optimal solutions will be is really, really interesting because we're only at the beginning of that journey. And I think there's huge, a huge revolution to happen. So there's scope for all sorts of different areas of science to contribute. And how do you sense the sort of the risk appetite of, of governments and policymakers and in the industrial sector in their willingness to put capital into prototyping and trialling these solutions? They won't all work and we don't know how they're going to work together. Well, I think that's a very, very interesting question. There needs to be a combination of sort of policy and regulation to actually stimulate this this transition. And for example, with electric cars, the, the idea is to only have electric cars being sold from 2030 forwards in, in the UK. But we also need to have a, an economic environment in which um, it makes good business sense to actually invest and develop these new these new energy systems. So for example, the you know the wind power in the UK is developing, it's already contributing a huge fraction of the electricity supply, that's only continuing. And there's enormous technology developing in offshore wind and, and new floating wind turbines. That's going to be absolutely critical in the UK. But I think then we're, we're going to need a, build, to build up a, a very large energy storage system to enable that to provide reliable and continuous electricity. So I think that, that requires government to come in and set a, a sort of policy and regulatory environment in which companies can operate. But I think also there's a, a social pressure to actually advance as quickly as we can in this domain. And giving people agency to actually contribute to the transition is one of the, the big challenges where I think a lot of interesting research and development is happening at the moment. So if people are trying to change their heating systems, you know, that's a, a major cost for individuals. But I think with digital technologies, there's a lot more control system available where you can have apps and other systems which, which give people ability to, to regulate, for example, their heating and save a lot of energy. And by reducing that demand of energy, we're actually making the whole transition easier because we need a smaller supply system. It's true, isn't it? Making it easy for people to do the right thing and exercise the right choice is, is critical. But that government and regulatory point of view, I mean, Richard, you've, you've seen this from uh, over the decades. Yes. And the UK is sadly deindustrialized. Yeah. 
And uh, if we lose the oil companies and don't replace them with new industries, we're all going to be worse off. And we're going to be depriving a lot of young people with the sort of job opportunities that we all had. So I think we have to up our game as a nation. We have to be much more ambitious, where we know we're going to build up a lot of new technology. We should own it. We should be in the driving seat. We should capture the value, bring in the skills. We do that as much as we can in Cambridge. Nationally, I don't think we've caught up yet. Uh, things are moving quite quickly in Europe. In, in solar, there's some really interesting initiatives, um, one I was hearing about in the Netherlands, where that can-do spirit is alive. And I hope when we've uh, got past the various upsets in government, we can have something that will galvanise the nation. Well, it is that opportunity, isn't it? And I often think when I listen to the public debate and, and you sometimes there's such anxiety, but also your point to Andy sense of helplessness or not quite knowing what to do. That roadmap that you spoke about, if that could be communicated to the public, they'd know what to demand. The moment they don't really know what to demand, apart from we need to solve this and I don't know how to do it myself or or I'm doing all the everything I can, but that's not going to be enough. I feel helpless in it. I think that challenge of providing opportunities. So if you want to work in the renewable energy world, doesn't matter what discipline you come from, what's your first job? What can you actually do that's going to make a difference? And the answers at the moment are not as easy to find as they could be. And I, I think that's something where we, <laughs> in a privileged place like this, can we make a difference. We have got a big opportunity yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm quite struck when I speak to particularly our undergraduates who are thinking about their careers, and many of them want to work in some area like uh, to do with climate change, but they often say they'd like to work in climate change policy. And I, I'm not sure we need very much policy. I think we need more solutions. We need more fabrication, implementation, financing, making it happen. Well, we've wandered off into a, a rather virtual world. And actually, these are very practical problems. And I, I have a sort of maybe it's an old fashioned view. Actually, a lot of a lot of young people and old people want to make things. And uh, just providing those opportunities matter. I, mean, I have to say that's always been my excuse for having tried to spin out science that I've been involved with where it looks as though it might be able to go somewhere. And what I do find is that lots of people making career decisions are very happy to take a chance because they actually want to be part of the journey, that translation to, to impact. It's an important part of how we think about the, particularly with our undergraduate and postgraduate students who are planning on a career outside academia. How do we give them the skills and the confidence to step into those areas and succeed quickly in them? Absolutely. And, and Cambridge is good. St John's has been very much involved with the, the, the high-tech environment. Our innovation centre has been spectacularly successful. I think making that uh, experience as available as possible to you know, all students, postdocs in the university and the college is, is important. It's always inspiring and it often causes career decisions to be made. Well, we're starting in college, actually, we're having a little pilot project to, to actually create a space in college and making space and start to put kit in there, which, which helps students understand how do I translate this into something that I'm, you know, almost this sort of dirt under the fingernails element, not that there's a lot of that happening these days, but understand how you get from concept to prototype. Can I maybe just a little comment on, on the opportunities? I think green technology provides the biggest economic and societal opportunity of the century. And I think the, the nation that grasps this opportunity will the one that becomes out strongest at the end. So I'm, I'm puzzled why this is not 
widely understood and it's puzzled to, to me why there's a lack of courage to really invest very heavily in new technologies and very new disruptive high-risk technologies. Because of course we, we have a portfolio in place and of course this will be rolled out but these are not necessarily the final technologies of the 22nd century. And I think at the place of, of Cambridge, I think we, we are aware of this, but of course we also need the support. And so I think it really needs alignment from, from companies plus government, uh, public, I think to really su support this thought and idea and, and drive this forward. I think there's you know a huge revolution going on in, in industry as well. Big industry are trying to transform their processes, bring in much lower energy technology, much lower emission technologies, and they're developing and inventing new approaches for all sorts of processes and actually linking that information with the university and our students is very important. And so you know, we've been doing a lot to try and bring in people from different industries just to communicate where the big opportunities lie. Um, and I think also teaching courses about this is, is very important. For example, I, I taught a course on carbon storage as one area and the students were extremely keen to then meet up with the companies involved in this so they could see where their skill sets could be applied to help in that industry. That's a huge potential export industry for the UK as mm -hmm. well as just developing that expertise and the knowledge. And I think one thing is that some of the technologies exist, but actually putting them together and inventing new systems is one of the big opportunities. And uh, learning how to do that is something that would be great to help our students learn about so that they can go and contribute in these industries. There are some interesting connections through to economics and finance, where the UK has actually done quite well. So offshore wind has been a, a great triumph for financing methods in the UK. One of the big reasons for offshore wind becoming quite affordable, beyond the fantastic technological advances, has been that the capital outlay, which is a big, big deal, has become much cheaper to finance because the UK's financial systems have been quite smart at understanding where risk has gone away and therefore technology can become affordable. We can be quite good when we integrate and that connection from just straight technology through to scale up to financing is something we don't often hear as much as we should about. It's interesting though because you're right we know how to do it and if I go back sort of 20 years when I was involved in regional economics we knew how to put together all the interests and all the policymakers and pull the funding and work beyond the electoral cycle to make the kind of infrastructural change you needed to transform a regional economy. And what you're talking about is the same thing, but on a mega scale. But we, we know how to do it. It's the willingness to take the step and to move into that space and to, and to be able to articulate to the public that this will not be an overnight success and explain to them how they will judge progress and feel confident that the, the investment's well made. Well, on the face of it, it just seems to be a win-win. It even addresses some of the regional inequalities yeah. because a lot of renewables take space and they would happen all over the country. To a, just a sort of over-rational scientist, I don't understand why we don't get on with some of this more quickly. Well, an absence of courage and an, an absence of being able to articulate a long-term vision with the kind of passion and confidence we need people to articulate and then to stick to it. Erwin, what's your perspective? I agree with what has been said. The mismatch of timescale is a big issue. So, so very often it feels from a, a government funding opportunities, it's very short term with, with quick delivery on very urgent uh, potentially tasks. Uh, companies have the same time window, I think, of profitable return. 
but of course this is not um, possible with new technologies and bringing them profitable on the market of it's actually the, the scale you mentioned so many of the technologies we work and even if we were to solve all the problems tomorrow it will still take us probably a decade or two to really have them at scale of an operation some of these new energy supply systems, when you develop them, you then realize there's a whole series of secondary industries mm. that build on that. So, for example, with wind farms, there's a very rapidly emerging drone application industry in terms of maintenance. Wind energy tends to be a much more margin business. And so making sure that you operate and maintain the wind farm for as large a time as possible is absolutely central to their success. And with drone technology, you can remove human inspections and have drones flying around looking at all the turbines. And there's a lot of control system technology as well, where you can use data analytics and AI to actually anticipate when you need to maintain turbines and intervene. So I think there's a whole series of other technologies, digital technologies emerging, which will really help to make these new systems operate more and more effectively. And, and we should really be at the forefront of this, trying to help contribute all the different work in Cambridge to this. But, but for that, we need to continually foster very strong dialogue and connections with the industries who are actually developing these technologies and, and implementing them so we can actually be part of that journey. And how effectively does that happen in this university? How easy is, is it for you individually and collectively to bring industry to your door, the right industry and the right money to the door? I mean, I always think we have the most amazing convening power. Do we know how to leverage it well enough? I think this university is probably doing as much, if not more than any university in the UK in this area. But are we famous enough for it? If we look at where Cambridge has made a huge impact, it's very often it's accidental. If we look at a company like Arm, which is the most astonishing success story, sort of 95% of smartphones are based on the Arm architecture. The story of Arm is that that architecture was developed for a different purpose and happened to be limping along in a company that wasn't doing very well. And then it was just what was needed when smartphones came along and Nokia ad adopted their technology and the rest is history. Yeah. I, I think the challenge with, with energy is that it often isn't the driver for new science and new technology. It's the transfer from other areas that is, has often been important. The energy industry didn't develop solar cells, it didn't do solid-state lighting, it didn't do batteries. They all came from other sectors. And I think one of the strengths that Cambridge has is that we are broad. We have exciting things going on everywhere. And I think we're very good at spotting when some advance can translate from where it might have been presumed to be useful to somewhere else. For example, I think the whole space of electronics is going to carry on being revolutionary, even without quantum computing. And you know, a lot of materials beyond silicon are going to become important. They will often be adopted in areas where there's a high margin, but then later they translate to the lower margin businesses such as energy generation or storage. So I don't, I don't think I would look to Cambridge to, to be very focused on supporting a particular industry. I, I think we're rather better at the inspirational leaps of ideas and yeah. leaps of uh, application spaces. If you can just comment on the companies as well. I've had good and bad experience with, with, with several sectors of, of companies, but the one difference I noticed that the energy sector, this goes back a bit to what Richard said, does not feel to be responsible really to drive the renewable transition. So it feels the investment is very limited and what the giveaway comes with very severe constraints. 
Uh, and it's very difficult from the pharmaceutical sector, for example. So when I, I work with pharma companies, they're much more generous and they really have understood that their future depends on new products, on new medicine. So they, they know that, that the whole business model revolves about this. I do not think that the energy sector has realized this or understood to the same degree. One of the problems with the energy sector is that it decoupled from vertically integrated development structures some time ago. And the model for innovation is therefore different to what happens in life sciences. And I think that's a challenge for any nation. And it's also an, an opportunity for a research university that we, we can set agendas and we can create the opportunities that companies, when they realize it, will see are important, but probably not at the earliest point. It's not unique to the UK, but we've, um, we've commoditized quite a lot of manufacturing Therefore, we've lost that direct connection to research, which is still there in the pharma world. I'm thinking, what could we as a college do to help galvanise the kind of change we need to see in that area? The biggest asset that Cambridge has is the, the talent in the student and postdoc base. And I, I think we need to galvanise that base by presenting opportunities. Uh, that involves a lot of dialogue. It involves a lot of understanding across disciplines, across areas of employment or possible future employment, but working out how to um, identify what is going to be moving quickly, where there are great opportunities for really smart, well-trained graduates leaving Cambridge. I think that's something we, we do quite well. We could do it better. But, but I think also on a, a, a pragmatic level, um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm involved at the moment in trying to understand how we can decarbonise the college. And actually the process of going through trying to understand how do we use science and technology to change our carbon emissions and yet be able to carry on and improve the, the quality of what we do and the environment in which we do that actually leads you to understand where there are big opportunities to introduce technology, introduce new energy systems, but also there's gaps in that and there's opportunity to develop innovation. So I think actually being involved in practical experiments as well as trying to understand how to create an environment to discuss these issues is very important. And already, for example, we've now thought about heating, not just in terms of supply, but also demand management. And demand management is a different way of thinking about heating and having very local digital controls for all users of heating and controlling that through a mixture of individual, but also central control gives you an opportunity to reduce the actual use of heating by 20 or 30%. And so those sorts of opportunities we may not be aware of because I think historically, Energy has been very, very cheap, and we've had plentiful supply of energy through fossil energies. And so we've really been using it to enable all sorts of technologies, but using it as efficiently and effectively as possible hasn't been one of the main drivers because it's been very a very low cost of the whole system. And I think now that we're having to replace that energy supply system with a whole new infrastructure... And the way that that new infrastructure will work is very different because of this issue with storage. I think it's forcing us to think about how to be much more efficient with our energy use. And that's going to open up a whole spectrum of new opportunities. So, and just to pick up on that, the, the one industry sector that is totally focused on energy efficiency is, is IT and electronics. We switched last century, it was all about speed. This century, it's how much computing you can do before the battery runs down or before you can't afford the electricity bill for your data farm. And so there's some wonderful examples of how that industry 
is making huge advances, the magic would be that that learning can be pushed into like more traditional manufacturing areas. So there are some role models that are actually more promising than one might expect. No, no absolutely. But, but I think developing an integrated system, so taking data centres and the heat they reject, using that as part of our heat supply system, can actually replace a very, not just data centres, but that can replace a large part of the energy requirements for heating. So, for example, in on the West Cambridge site, there's you know, the data centre up there, the heat rejected from that is actually being put into a new heating loop for all the buildings up on West Cambridge site. And developing that, that approach with an integrated whole energy system is there's all sorts of opportunities for that, which will, I think, transform the cost and economics of the individual components. One of the jobs I do is I'm chair of the judging panel for the major award in the Royal Academy of Engineering, the McRobert Award. We go around companies who self-nominate for an engineering innovation. Energy efficiency crops up time and time again. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. If you electrify something that used to be run with a diesel engine, it is amazing how much more efficient it is. It is happening. Uh, what is needed are some existent proofs. You know, industry is not that dumb. But I also think, I mean, Andy's touched on the work that he's leading for the college. So like any other responsible body in the UK, we've set ourselves a carbon zero target. But we've we've gone a bit further than that. We've made a very deliberate decision that the place we can have the most impact is by addressing our on-site uh, energy consumption and our carbon emissions. And we're going into this in great depth. We could have done something quite superficial. And we've decided, which I think is right in a body, which is all about research and pushing the boundaries, we've decided to do it in depth, harnessing the academic talent of the college, prototyping new solutions harnessing the behaviour change and, as you say, the demand side at the same time and also embedding that into a research project that we can share. I think it's important as an academic institution that we practice what we preach in that regard. Well, one of the things I hope we will do is to be completely open about how well or how badly it works. It's actually surprisingly hard uh, if one goes looking around to see how good different solutions are. Heat pumps may be good, um, but sometimes they're not. So really, we are in a position to be completely open and just providing a really good um, operational data set would be a major contribution. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're we're recording what the different technologies can achieve, what the, the real numbers are in terms of energy savings and energy efficiencies, and that will actually provide a baseline, we hope, and that's all being published. In real time? As, as real time as, as possible. We're sharing it across Cambridge very easily because yeah. these are our neighbours, but also the publication, the research component of it, the commitment there. Because I mean, good operational data is, I mean, any company knows that's important, but when it's a collective activity of you know, the citizens in the country, it's, it, it isn't often as available as it should be. Big Absol- role there. Absolutely, that, that's a huge role. And, and we're also you know, engaging with different industries who are contributing different information, but actually challenging some of the efficiencies that are quoted from you know, commercial products by actually having real data to, to test that. And for people who might be listening to this who don't, well, what are you talking about? You know, we're talking about a community of about 1,500 people who live on a 17-acre site in buildings that date from 500 years ago to the last decade or so, who have all kinds of different sort of forms of life in the college. They might live here full time, they live here part time, they come in in the daytime, they come in in the evening. It's kind of like a village. So it's not just that this is useful if you are running an academic institution. If you want to make a transition in any other kind of comparable environment, we will be able to share what we've learned, how we've done it. We'll be able to prototype, we'll be able to say what went better than we expected, where the unexpected discoveries have fallen, and 
hopefully that's our sort of very operational contribution to helping people feel that this is an addressable challenge rather than something beyond them. And I think by trying to do the, the practical experiment, we've actually understood what some of the blockers are in the infrastructure of the system. So we have a plan about how we can change the machines in college that provide the heating. So essentially, we're going to try and replace the gas-fired heating with a heat pump array and some associated storage systems. But all that needs electricity to drive it. And one of the constraints is that Cambridge as a city is close to using all the electricity that's supplied into the city. And so until we have extra electricity supply from the grid, and this is about scaling the grid, the university as a whole can't actually introduce all these machines because there's, there's no power to run them. And so I think it's, it's understanding that the energy transition actually involves a series of different changes to infrastructure that all have to happen concurrently. And you, you can't invest in some capital investment in, in machines that do things unless you also have the power supply to run that. And, and so one of the challenges is to try and communicate, as we are doing, to the different players in this um, system, the need for all these technologies to keep pace. And it's, it's very similar with electric vehicles. We have this aspiration that we'll only be able to buy electric vehicles in 2030, but unless there's enough charging points freely or readily available for people so they can recharge the batteries in these cars, there's going to be a challenge to actually making that a practical infrastructure. So, And that is coming, and there's a lot of investment in that, but it's it's having the whole system change, and that's a, a complex, multifaceted problem. And I think that's right. one of the issues with um, trying to make effective and a functioning energy transition. It leaps right back to the need for sort of national leadership and national integrated solution and, and the willingness to invest at pace and to persuade the public that that will require some disruption to their amenity value or their day-to-day -day lives to get us over this this hump quickly. The need to have a joined-up national plan is so evident and we have not been able to make some of those decisions recently. It's hard when you're not sure what the solution is going to be to make the commitment to invest. But what has changed really quite recently is that absolute certainty that we now have that energy is going to go through electricity. All the options point that way. It's obvious, therefore, that we should have a national plan for having enough electricity distribution capacity. And it is surprising that we have been very, very slow to adopt that. But if we as a college can use our own problems with getting access to electricity supply to just highlight that this is a real blocker, that would be in the national interest. <laughs> In all our interests, yeah. Erwin, tell me, when your postdocs are joining your lab, when you're finding PhD students, what's what's driving them? Is it the curiosity about the science or the burning desire to find the solution to this mind-boggling challenge that we're all facing? It, I think it's it's very mixed. Um, some some people come with a, with a bigger motivation, as you say, to make a contribution. Others are just truly fascinated by the science. And I think any motivation works for me. So as long as people are motivated and, and are driven and get on with the research and successful in their careers, that, that's all good. Um, what can I say for, for me personally, what drives me? I think it's, it's very, very important that we are still happy with our day-to-day -day, um, routine. So going into the lab and that really enjoy what we are doing. And then, of course, making a useful bigger picture contribution, hopefully in the long term, is also a very good driver. For our listeners who don't 
really understand, well, what is a lab? Give us an idea about, you know, how many different research projects you have running at any one time and, and you sort of sit at the top of actually quite a lot of programmes of activity. Yeah, so in, in my laboratory, it's about 25 people, meaning half are PhD students, half are postdocs. Um, postdocs are essentially scientists after their PhD degree. And it's essentially space where, where we do our experiments, uh, where we have our equipment, where we do our analysis. And there are multiple projects, as you mentioned, but they're all coming together under one big theme of trying to use sunlight to make sustainable chemicals and fuels. Where's the funding coming from? Very diverse. From UK, Europe, companies, even donations, many scholarships. They're very broad and diverse. Give us an idea of how much it costs to run a lab like yours each year. For us, we need about £2 million a year. Which isn't really very much to deliver the kinds of amazing outcomes and opportunities that you're pursuing. Mm, yeah. So we hear lots of urgent calls for action. We've heard a level of optimism around the table. If you were going to do some crystal ball gazing, what winners would you back at the moment? So I think you know, we, we are on this trajectory with uh, wind and solar. And as Richard said, having electricity as the, the, the main energy supply, that's going to come through. I think we're going to have a lot more control systems, a lot more enabling through digital technology apps and so on to actually control our usage of energy. And I think in 10, 20 years, people will appreciate the value of being much more energy efficient. I mean, already we see energy prices have gone up because of this pressure on supply from the Ukraine war. That's already having a major impact in consumption. But I think as we, you know, we can draw the lessons from that initial interest in energy efficiency and actually enable, give people agency and enable them to be more energy efficient through digital technology. I think that's going to have a huge role going forward. In, in 20 years time, I, I can imagine we'll have been through quite a bit of this industrial revolution. We'll have changed many of the systems because, you know, the lifetime of many of these systems for energy supply is of order 20 years. So if we can actually encourage government to beef up the regulations so we actually drive drive those changes as quickly as possible with EVs, heating systems and so on, that will then drive the demand for the supply, as it were. That 20-year time horizon is really interesting there as well, isn't it? We've got an awful track record in this country of sort of the best being the enemy of the good. So we never quite go for, let, let's start and have a go with it. By the time we're kind of 15 years down the line, the technology will have changed anyway. We'll be nearly at the end of life. That's the moment at which we start to plan for the, the successor of it. But that, that sense that we have to nail down every perfect element of a solution. So we're always lagging and it's never perfect. I always use an example close to where I live at home is that Ribblehead Viaduct. It's a massive, amazing infrastructure project, um, the longest viaduct in the UK. Um, when it was built, 2,000 people lived at the top of uh, the Ribblehead and they lived in a, a builder's camp. They had churches, shops, brothels, everything for them to live there. And you can't see any sign of them there now. But in today's world, the thought that that might happen for the period of building it would be enough almost to skewer that you might ever provide that infrastructure, you'd be so long negotiating your way through, is it okay to have this temporary disruption to achieve that outcome? And I think that's the balance that we've got wrong at the moment. Too often from a public policy or public sentiment point of view, everybody's interests have to be so catered for that what we do is suboptimal. I'm going to be an optimist. Well, I'm trying very hard to be an optimist. I think we're going to drive down the cost of renewable electricity generation. We've done a factor of 10 in the last 10 years, more or less with offshore wind, certainly with solar. So the question to consider is, are we going to plateau? At some point we must, but have we plateaued already or can we go down lower? 
I think we're going to get a lot lower. It's going to be a global challenge, but I think in 20 years' time, no one is going to burn oil to make electricity unless it's uh, somewhere a bit crazy because it's just a waste of money because wind and solar are going to be much, much cheaper. And I think that is going to be driven by plain economics and that is going to create a lot of opportunities for how we do just about everything. We can reinvent the chemical industry from what Irwin is doing. Uh, there are other options as well for hydrogen. It's all within range. We can do it. That's already happening. I mean, it's already the cheapest form of energy supply. What happens if it were three times cheaper? I mean, that, that would be a complete game changer. And we can do it. But I think then the opportunities come in, in trying to understand how we make much more efficient the, the whole storage industry because because of this intermittency we need to have the storage to go with that and we could just have an enormously oversized renewable supply system and if the costs become sufficiently low one can imagine that as a scenario and i think it'll be a balance between those two well economics can play their part but if we can have at least one element of it where we, it is just plain obviously the cheapest thing to do then that presents lots of opportunities for how we balance our energy system. It's a great accelerator. Exactly. Great accelerator. That, that, that is the thing that moves things quickly. Yeah. Well, you know what Irwin's doing, which is a sort of the virtuous circle of how he's addressing through the chemical and the energy challenges that he's looking at. How much of that do you see being replicated across the kind of the raft of, of, of chemical engineering and chemical applications? These are very obvious next steps. I mean, lo looking at a crystal ball, I think it's just very tough to predict what happens in 10, 20 years in this space. Um, certainly, if I look at myself, I wouldn't have known 10 years ago where we are in our research today. But I think from, from a nation, what we should do, the UK is an, a country of innovators. I mean, I think this has, there's history and this is still driving the country. And that's why I think the new innovations is where we should invest to have these technologies ready in 10, 20 times. Although we may not know precisely how they look like. I mean, there are many technologies. I mean, I don't want to maybe, oh, maybe I do it now deliberately. But if you bring nuclear fusion into the discussion, if this starts to work eventually, this would disrupt everything. But of course, we are again still 40 years away, of course. But I actually profoundly yeah. disagree. I think that is massively oversold. If you want to go for a futuristic energy technology and you can do the sums, is it more likely that we'll have square kilometres of solar panels in geostationary orbit beaming microwaves back to the Earth or running a nuclear fusion reactor? And it is the former. It's cheaper and it's nearer term and it would work just as well. No, but this is exactly my point. So the, also, also what you mentioned, geo-orbit, etc. I mean, these all technologies we're not taking seriously today. It's really interesting. Elon Musk may have made that possible, even though he doesn't believe in it. It all depends on how much it costs to put a kilogram of stuff into geostationary orbit, and he's brought it down by a factor of 10 with his reusable spacecraft, and it, that turns out to change the economics. It, it's, it's wonderfully unexpected. But your point is that serendipitous kind of opportunity yes. gain, isn't it? Elon Musk was so doing much, it for, for another reason. So but much suddenly, is changing. Yeah. And, and, and I think we just have to, sometimes we sort of hear, well, we've got all the tools, we just need to be more economical and turn the heating down. Actually, there's far more at play and technology and science is going to be much more unexpected. We, we may have some pleasant surprises. This is also the, the beauty of being an academic in this field, right? You can't really dream. So effectively, we don't know in 10, 20 years time where things are going. And I think it's completely legitimate to explore all sorts of different directions. 
And then we just, sometimes we need a bit of a reality check as well, admittedly, but still it, it provides this really creative playground for academics, but also our students and postdocs and undergraduates to engage on this topic as well. And of course, this is then where St. John's can also provide or, or be a part of bringing all people from different backgrounds together to, to work on a holistic approach and possible scenarios. It's absolutely true. I, but I think I think there's a whole range of timescales involved here. And if we want to try and decarbonize as quickly as possible, there's certain obvious next steps to follow, next technologies to develop, um, sustainable air fuels, for example. And they may not be the long-term solution, but there's different biofuels. They, again, may not be the long-term solution, but in the medium term, they're actually having a big impact in reducing carbon. So I think there will be unexpected discoveries that will mean in 20 years' time there'll be things that are totally different from what we can imagine today. But I think if we want to do things in the next 20 years to change the system in the next 10, 20 years, there's a whole series of um, there's, there's new science innovations. Some of them can be brought to market very quickly. The challenge is really to foster both these very short-term wins we can have that will really help us decarbonise as fast as possible, as well as fostering that longer-term change, which will revolutionise how we supply and deliver and use the energy. And I think Cambridge can play a role in all of these different approaches. I think one of the challenges is to engage the students about this whole opportunity space and thinking through new ways of informing them and, and giving them opportunities to participate which we do through our research, but I think if we can understand how to engage the broader nation, the broader industry, I think that would have enormous potential. Well, how exciting. Reasons to be cheerful. We're in safe hands with these three exceptional uh, fellows around the table. And as I said in my introduction, we could have had 24 fellows around the table who could have, it wouldn't have been a very easy conversation to, uh, to chair, but could have injected even more insight uh, from their different disciplines. Perhaps we'll do that on another occasion. But for now, thank you so much, Richard, Irwin and Andy, for sharing your science, your ambition, your observations on how we get this right as a country and uh, for all of our good in the future. And that sense that this is a pioneering place. We have got a roadmap. We know what to do. We can do it. And uh, we shouldn't be afraid of a few failures along the way because the outcomes are going to be in all of our interests. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Souvian. Souvian is taken from Souvent me Souvian, the medieval French motto of our founder, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty. Souvent me Souvian is usually translated as I often remember or remember me often. That's why when visiting St. John's, you'll see blue forget-me-not flowers in the decorations surrounding the college's arms. Lady Margaret's own story of political brilliance, self-preservation and personal influence is one we remember often. For more on life at St John's College and the University of Cambridge, visit joh.cam.ac.uk or follow us on social media. Music